Cool. All right, let's go. Thanks for, for listening. And um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Philip Arneal. I'm a photographer. I'm currently in Dublin at the moment after 20 long years in Japan. And I'm here with James Catchpole, who is my partner in the Tokyo Jazz Joints Project. Good evening. Good to talk to you, Philip. It's been a long time. It has been. It has been. So we're here today to talk about uh, Tokyo Jazz Joints, specifically today because it's March 27th, which means obviously it's the highlight of both our years, uh, as it's the anniversary of when we began this project five long years ago in a uh, tiny, grimy little uh, jazz bar called Pithecanthropus erectus in Kamata, sort of down at heel suburb of Tokyo. Uh, and that's where the project Beautiful began. urban downtown portside <laughs> Tokyo. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. The, first, the first of many, many drunken nights uh, in jazz bars when we were telling our significant others that we were working on a project. Well, obviously, just... the, the drunken obviously applies only to you, but yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> um, no, we so... can't all be born in Ireland, you know. Indeed, indeed. So yeah, so how does it feel? Like it's been five years. Um, I thought we thought it'd be a good chance to just chat a little bit about the project and maybe a few anecdotes that we have uh, behind the project, uh, maybe a couple of standout places or experiences that we've had throughout the course of the five years, and then maybe just uh, touch a little bit on what the kind of next steps are for the project. Because, you know, we never thought when we began with that one place that it would be going five years later. And certainly from my side, I, I plan to get back to Japan and do a bit more photographing. So there's a lot more to come from, from Tokyo Jazz Joints. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, uh, you know, after five years, it's kind of hard to believe. I'm, neither of us thought we would still be doing and talking about this project uh, when we started, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because we've, we've, showing the pictures around a lot of different places already um but again at the start it was more just an idea i i think i remember i mean we knew each other peripherally but had not really hung out much before starting this project and so when you pitched it to me um i was so happy just because you know i had been doing my own jazz tokyo jazz site for about five six seven years uh, but just really more as an informational site, just a database. There's nothing artistic about it. There was no real photos. Um, I took photos on my flip phone at the time. So you can imagine what they, you remember what they look like. I mean, they were just, every place looked alike. So, um, yeah, when you pitched the project to me, of you know, kind of pooling our, our knowledge and skills and, and going around to do it, I was, I was completely into it right from the start. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I had this kind of epiphany when just before I left Japan, I went with a friend uh, down to, to um, Kansai to, to check out a few places that we hadn't managed to, to get to uh, before I left Japan. And that was nearly three years ago. And um, I think it was, it was on a sort of a really rainy kind of rainy season day that we managed to get to Hello Dolly in Kyoto. And I think it was when I went in there for the second time, I realized that I had this kind of moment that the first time that I'd been there, like five or six years previously, I think was the moment at some point uh, during that experience, this kind of seed had been planted of like, oh, these would be interesting places to photograph. And I think looking back now, that's where the idea originally came. But I remember that day that we went to, that we went to meet in the now famous JBS in Shibuya. Um, yes, yes, that's uh, right. Yeah. Which I don't think was as famous then as it is now. Um, 
maybe some of our Japan-based listeners will know, JBS is a is a jazz blues soul. It's just a record bar that, uh, for many reasons, really took off overseas and uh, became like a magnet for a lot of tourists, which is quite unusual for these kinds of places, you know. But I mean, I I think you know that day I was kind of nervous about the idea, but obviously. For those of you who don't know, as you know, I'm a photographer. James is a broadcaster, a DJ, and he's done a lot of research and a lot of work and writing around like music culture in Japan. And um, I knew of his kind of listing site, so I thought he'd be the perfect person to kind of do the project with because he had the background knowledge. He knew a lot of the owners. He knew a lot of the locations. And that was like fundamental when we started planning kind of places to go because obviously James knew uh, what easier places to perhaps start with or places that maybe were in threat of closing and stuff like that. So I remember coming away that day from JBS that kind of feeling quite sort of buoyant and like thinking, okay, well, this might be something. And, and then obviously yeah. we, we arranged to meet in, in Pithecanthropus, I think it was like a couple of weeks later. Um, That's right. It was, it was just a couple of weeks later and I, I had the exact same thoughts because um, I knew I had attended your photo exhibit when you you did the jazz dancer scene here in Tokyo yeah um and so you know and when you pitched me the idea I thought okay this isn't just like a photographer who doesn't know anything about the music or is just interested in sort of the you know sociological side of it you're actually a really big fan as well um because you know I don't think it would have worked it'd be hard for us to go around to 150 places if you didn't dig the music and we didn't really bond over that that would have been really probably a bit uncomfortable and repetitious after a while, but the fact that you had the, the photo skills, the interest and, and a love of the music, you know, I think once we, once we kind of hit our first couple bars, it was like, oh, this is really going to be fun and, and fulfilling as well. And particularly when we went to that first night in, in uh, Pithecanthropus, um, which is one of the older, you know, divier places you could imagine in, in, in Tokyo, um, you know the the photos right away we could we could sense that like there's something special here that needs to be captured visually because you just can't describe it you know too much to people they don't really get what you mean they think of especially outside of japan when you talk about oh you know i was drinking this classical jazz bar they're going to have an image of something very different something that's more like in new york you know where there's live music and they don't really understand the atmosphere of what it's like in japan where it's a listening bar you sit down and listen to records and you really don't talk much um, so, you know, being able to capture that uh, visually was, was just such a, was such a great idea. I mean, it's hard to believe nobody had ever come up with this idea before you did, you know? Yeah. I mean, my memory certainly of that first night, you know, is, is very much like we did know each other, as you say, but it was very much a kind of like a, a club friendship where it'd be like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? You know, we'd, we'd meet right. a lot of events. mutual friends. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember when we met at the station. Uh, that was my first, that's when I got my first experience of uh, how quick you walk. Uh, so I was kind of dragging behind you as we made our way towards Pithecanthropus. And I was wondering, was it something I'd said? But anyway, we, we, we arrived and of course, typically it was closed. Um, and I, I always kind of remember that as a real pivotal mo evening because I think, you know, it could have worked out so differently. So my memory of it is that we went there, it was closed. I think we tried calling. They had like a landline. We got no answer, and I think then you suggested we we went to a sort of a standing bar nearby. We had a couple of drinks, a couple of snacks. Uh, went back again. I think it was still closed. Had another drink, and then I think the third time we came back, it was the shutter had like happily come up, and of course we we went in. And I always think back to that night because I think you know I wonder had it been closed that night, would we have just sort of thought, well, 
you know, this is not going to really work and pack the whole thing in. And, you know, that was 162 joints <laughs> ago. So, you know, it's funny how like these things kind of, they pivot on this sort of this one moment in time, you know, it's, it's fascinating. And it was a good harbinger for what to expect because unlike almost everything else in Japan, um, jazz joints don't operate according to any set schedule. You, you can never rely on the times that you might see listed on the web if they even have a website or their mm -hmm. business card. You know, they generally open when, when the owner gets there and that really can fluctuate depending on the day. Um, so sometimes you, you know, you might be around early and you see the light on and other times the guy never shows up. I mean, we've had, we've run into that experience a lot of times now where, uh, you know, we've seen the listings, but for some reason the place was closed, you know, and um, it's just a different world to what you expect in the rest of Japan. But Yeah. So, I mean, anyway, I mean, from that night, I guess we, we kind of just, it, it kind of started to tick over. We, made some plans, did a couple a night. And to anyone who doesn't know like what we do, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talking about me being a sort of a fan because I think my whole approach to photographing is very much a sort of like a, a kind of embedded one, if you like, in the sense that like, you know, we go there, we tend to go in, you know, do our greetings or whatever, sit down as customers, we order drinks, have a bit of a chat, get a feel for the place, kind of, you know, figure out whether the owner seems like he wants to have a chat or she wants to have a chat. And then, you know, we kind of generally engage in conversation. And at some point then um, in the evening, you know, I'll kind of ask in, in fairly polite Japanese, if it's okay to take some photos and, uh, and that's how we kind of capture the places. So it's, it's not a, it's not a sort of a parachuting in parachuting out kind of experience. We, we, we kind of really enjoy the joints as customers. And amazingly, like in all the places that we've been to, we've never been refused permission to photograph. Um, you know, there's one or two owners who, who preferred not to be photographed. And sometimes Japan being kind of a private place, you know, they'll say, uh, please photograph, don't, don't put any customers' faces in the photographs, you know, if there are any customers there. Um, well, but, no, there was, there was the one place. There was one place yeah. in Saitama that they didn't let us take pictures. And, right. and I remember it was strange because they were obviously always polite, as most people are in Japan. Uh, but we couldn't figure out the reason. And so I decided to push it and ask him, I don't know if you remember this place up yeah. near Kawaguchi in Saitama. And, and he said, well, you know, a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, we get a lot of like annoying sales calls here and, you know, it just makes us a little cautious. And the second reason was because they had a lot of female customers. So this mm -hmm. kind of jazz place, I guess, in, in, in a, in a way to maybe make more money, they cleaned it up and they started offering nicer tea and cake sets to appeal to Japanese women. Um, and uh, to increase their customers, not just have the old guys who come at night. Um, but, you know, for obvious reasons, they don't want two strange Western men coming and taking pictures of the place when it's full of female customers. Because, again, that would be a bit of an invasion of privacy. So I still remember that was the only place that we could never take even a picture of, like, the, the records. Just I remember asking if we would just take a picture of the albums. And he was like, look, I'm really sorry we can't do it. I think also he mentioned something. I think I remember vaguely a sort of, something along the lines of not wanting to be featured in a, like social media or something. So I think they were obviously trying to keep the place quite, um, you know, sort of off the, off the grid, if you like. But I mean, it wasn't the end of the world. I think, you know, we like in terms of how we, we choose the places that we photograph, you know, we, we kind of go based on sometimes on reputation, obviously sometimes geographical location. And there, there are places we've been to as well that we haven't photographed or, you know, just decided that, 
maybe they didn't quite fit like aesthetically or in terms of like the, the kind of general vibe with the project. So the project like is very much, you know, the purpose for us is to kind of capture and, and I, for me, certainly as a photographer, is to, is to document and record this kind of amazing jazz, kisa, jazz bar culture in Japan because, like, it's disappearing, it's vanishing, um, you know, within the context of the project, even there's 15 or 20 places that, that we photographed and, and visited have already gone. Uh, and, and that's not even updated. I mean, uh, you know, it's funny because we were, we were prepping to talk about this and I, I started thinking more and more about Miles which is a um, a tiny little bar, hard to describe to people who've not visited Japan. I mean, imagine you went to visit your 85-year-old aunt who lived in a, a <laughs> studio apartment, um, cluttered with jazz records and old magazines and dusty lamps. This is what the bar is like. And um, Miles had been, you know, there was rumors about, of course, there's no website for this place. Uh, but we'd heard through the grapevine the old lady was sick and the bar was closed. She wasn't going to reopen. Um, and then miraculously, she recovered and opened the bar again. So the fact that we were able to get there at that time when her health was clearly already very failing yeah. um, was so special because, you know, the, I don't think that um, the even the owners themselves often appreciate how special their shops are. That's one thing that I, I always try to get through when I take people around or, you know, when we, you know, my website, the photo project we're doing um, is that, you know, people who are jazz fans from other countries can get it when they visit. Wow. This is a really cool spot, you know, but the owners sometimes don't get it. And they've often expressed that to us, you know, why do you guys want to take pictures? Like, what, what are you doing? Why, why me? Why my little dusty spot? You know? Yeah. I, I think with miles, like I, I have a vague recollection of us going once and, and the shutter being down. And I think we looked in, the, the window of the house, there was sort of like a chink in the curtains in the, in the window below where clearly the owner was living. So we saw the owner kind of like in her own kind of living room, like, you know, tatami style space. But at that point she was obviously still quite ill. So uh, she wasn't opening upstairs. And it's funny, like when we finally went back and got in and, and I look back now as a photographer on the pictures, you know, and some of the earlier places that we shot, you know, they look, to me much more kind of cautious and like a bit reticent you know I, I think even at that stage you know as we were getting like 5 10 15 places under our belt I was still just like easing into it and you know anyone who's experienced Japan in any way you know you realize like you don't want to cause offense to people and you want to kind of tread carefully often and I think like for me I'd love to go back to some of those earlier places and re-photograph them like we did with Pithecanthropus because like you know as as the project went on and, and confidence in, in the project grew and we started to show some of the photos and online and in different exhibitions and in magazines and things, you know, I think my confidence as a photographer definitely grew in terms of, you know, I, I was much less, you know, I think it's at the start, I was kind of trying to sort of maybe hide in the shadows a bit and, and really not cause any kind of like disturbance whatsoever um, in taking the photos. And I, and I feel like maybe with those earlier places that kind of, um, restricted a little bit the, the the visual images that I got, but um, so it's really interesting. That's, it's interesting you felt that way because I I, I guess it's because um, I I didn't feel that way when I saw the pictures, you know. But maybe it's because those initial places that we went were ones that I was more familiar with. Yeah. Um, and I had been some of them I had been many many times. Um, so for me it was almost more like oh yeah you know this is like a finally a little bit taste of what I've got from this 
from this joint over the years, you know, it's finally got the right picture of it that I can show to people, you know? So I didn't, I didn't feel that way at all, but I, you know, that's, that's a different kind of perspective. And I mean, certainly we got over that feeling pretty quickly. I think we, within, you know, generally, um, within two, three minutes of, you know, ordering a drink and sitting down, I'd start to chat with the owner. Wouldn't immediately talk about the pictures, but would start explaining a little bit about what we do. And then, um, you know, inevitably they would give us some permission. So. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, for me that the reaction of the owners is, is something that really drove the project on because I think they were so, you know, at first often a bit baffled by the whole thing, but um, they kind of, just were so flattered in some ways or so surprised that we were even doing something like this. The one, the one that really stands out in my memory is, is a place called Mura in, in Kyoto. And I remember going in and if you look at the pictures on the website, you'll, you'll notice it uh, instantly because the owner's wearing a really bright red sort of Hawaiian style shirt. And, and the bar is sort of particularly uh, stands out because they have this, he has this huge fish tank, yes huge red fish in it and i remember going in there particularly and and feeling a real kind of like a a bit of a sort of a a vibe you know um it was very local neighborhood place this guy had the kind of look of him like he could maybe play you know like a a sort of like a mobster in a japanese film so he just had this kind of energy about him and um it was only when i eventually approached him and started talking to him and i remember just chatting and he was quite kind of frosty and then when i said like you know that we visited and, and photographed about 120 places like his face just like it was like a switch you know it just completely changed and he loosened up and like really warmed up and and in the end i got you know a great portrait of him as well as as photos in the bar so you know that enthusiasm is something that's really driven on the project because i think you know that the owners like you say that they don't really know what they're sitting on they don't really know how amazing these places are and a lot of them often say to you don't they like you know when you tell them you're american they often say oh but you have these places in america right exactly especially when i say you know i'm from new york they're like oh that's the capital of jazz i say well for the live scene sure you know but there's very very few places if any that you can go sit down and listen to records and and they're not going to be a full collection like you find here um, go back to what you just said, though, about the owner's reactions is that, you know, once we had started doing this for about a year or so, um, the word started to spread around about us, which was incredible. And what we also realized was that a lot of these owners knew each other. Now, that seems a little bit strange because you think if you've been running a jazz bar or cafe for 30 years, how would you know all these other people? Because you never go out. You're pretty mm. much running the place all the time. But we found that once you drop the names of a couple of key famous jazz spots in Japan, oh yeah, I've been there and I know the owner and we took pictures, then that opens up a lot of doors, um, especially when we started uh, going outside of Tokyo and we would mention some of the famous Tokyo jazz spots. Immediately, there, the coolness or the sort of cautiousness of dealing with two foreign guys would melt away. Um, that happened when we went to the north of Japan. Uh, do you remember? Uh, we spent the day up in uh, Iwate Prefecture, uh, which is a couple hours on the bullet train from Tokyo. And uh, we, I think, how many places did we hit that day? Five or six? Yeah, about that, yeah. Especially the two things that stuck out for me was, you know, you leave Tokyo, so you think, okay, there's not going to be as many great authentic jazz joints, but they're everywhere. I mean, th probably the most memorable one from that day 
was going to um, a place called Ray Brown, named after the great bass player. <laughs> and uh, the Ray Brown Cafe is basically just the first floor of this guy's house in a very drab northern Japanese country town where there's literally nothing around. Um, except you go into the cafe and then you see a gigantic portrait of Ray Brown, the bass player, and his wife with this Japanese guy and his wife at his wedding ceremony. <laughs> and it's it's just such a, it, I mean, it literally made me do a double, triple take. I was like, wait yeah, a second, yeah. this guy had Ray Brown at his wedding and he lives up in the middle of nowhere in Japan. What is the story here? So sitting with him for an hour and hearing how he became really good friends and he used to promote gigs and all of this. It's just like, oh my God. I mean, you know, you would never expect it to find this up in the countryside. And yet we found it again and again and again in so many different spots. I mean, I can't remember, uh, you probably do, but uh, do you remember then after that he approached us about trying to get in touch with, uh, was it Quincy Jones? It was, yes, it yeah, was so Quincy Jones. That's right. Basically, yes. after we finished, he, he kind of said, oh, by the way, would you, would you know any way to get in touch with Quincy Jones? Because, you know, obviously all Americans know each other. So, um, and he, he, it turns out he had some footage that he'd taken in like the in 69 or 70 of video like eight millimeter footage of Quincy Jones uh, in concert and he had discovered this in his house and wanted to get uh, this footage to Quincy Jones. <laughs> and, Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just plug Quest's, uh, <laughs> Quest Company's number out my cell phone and I'll give him a ring. Yeah. Oh my, that was just, that was nuts. I mean, that day, so Ray Brown, and that was the same day we went to Basie, which is, um, for people yeah. outside Japan who might be listening to this, Basie is probably one of the two or three most famous uh, jazz cafes in the whole country, um, due to a couple of reasons. One, the audio system, um, and two, the owner who, how would you describe <laughs> How would you describe Swifty? Well, I, I'd are, say uh, the, the way that we, the way that I would describe him is uh, the way that we found him when we went in. So when we finally got there, I mean, for us, this was like a, a kind of like this was our kind of pilgrimage to Mecca moment, wasn't it? Like this was the jazz. Oh yeah. Guy, like, oh yeah. So, so we got up there. We we kind of got came in very very reverentially and sort of like like we were entering like a temple or a church or something. Sort of sat down. You know, we're kept our voices nice and low and then we spotted him off in the corner and and you know you can see the portrait that we we eventually got of him on the website but he was sitting off to the corner at a huge round wooden table um he was in a sort of a cream kind of sports jacket yeah sunglasses on hair mm -hmm. slicked back uh fingers covered with rings and he was writing poetry uh, in Japanese with a black fountain pen and sort of sipping, sipping a drink. And then all around him was this kind of like memorabilia and signed photographs and, and, and notes and, and kind of all this amazing jazz sort of um, memorabilia. And we just kind of were in total awe. And he was I sitting underneath a picture of McCoy Tyner, of him and McCoy Tyner. And <laughs> I was just right. thinking like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What was McCoy Tyner doing up here in the 70s, you know? Yeah. And we should, we should tell everyone as well, this was, this was before 12 noon. This was because the place opens at like 1130, I think. So we got there right in the beginning, Yeah. right in the morning. And it's 1130 and he's already got the wine out and chain smoking. Never took his sunglasses off. And then do you remember his friend that came who was even more of a dandy boy? 
yeah. who used to be the editor. So his friend, so Swifty, Sugawa Asan, who runs Basie, the amazing jazz cafe up north, he's probably in his early 70s. And then, uh, so when we finally sit down to chat with him, we explain what the, the project is. He immediately pulls the chairs out. He calls the waitress over. We start getting free drinks, free highballs and beer. And it's barely noon. And then his friend comes in, who's even more of a dandy, wearing a navy blue blazer, small round sunglasses. He's about the same age in his 70s. And he used to be the editor of Playboy magazine in Japan. Yeah, Two yeah. of those guys go way back. So they just sit there and start reminiscing and drinking wine and talking to us about the old days and the jazz scene there. And yeah. it was it was just like, it was like walking into a movie. It was almost as if they planned it for us, you know? And it all happened so quickly too, because I mean, for those of you who don't know James and I, like, you know, I'll generally be sitting and then once I start photographing, he'll also decide to get up. So a lot of my time photographing is sort of, is, is kind of telling James to get out of the frame of the picture. But like, I remember going to the toilet um, and coming out, and by that time you'd gone on a wander, um, and I was, I'm always so terrified because, you know, when we ask permission to take photographs, it's like one of these real moments because you're just dreading, you know, that someone will say no, because obviously if you kind of surreptitiously take photographs, you can take photographs anywhere, but you don't necessarily get the best photos, but equally, if someone says to you, you know, don't take photos, then, you know, it's disrespectful, and and, you know, I think sort of a bit unethical to then go ahead and take photographs. So I went off to the toilet. By the time I reemerged from the toilet, James had somehow made contact with Swifty. He'd invited him over to the table. And so I remember coming out of the toilet and James said to me, you know, oh, come on, come on, we've been invited over. And then suddenly this sort of phalanx of, of um, uh, women who were working there just came, like sort of descended on our table, took all our bags, our coats, all our stuff, <laughs> moved it over to his table, and we were kind of plunked down there. And then, of course, you know, he clicked his fingers, and next thing, like drinks and snacks and all this stuff started to emerge. And we, you know, we just, we kind of just had sat, I think, for about an hour, an hour and a half, and like had an amazing chat with him and managed to get a great chat we got the pictures we even walked out yeah, with yeah. a few gifts that he gave us a couple yeah. magazines uh, and and other souvenirs and it was just um and, and it's so crazy because that was pretty much the start of the day and you know <laughs> I, I think by the time we ended that that night in sendai i was i was i was doing pretty rough by the time we got out of the last <laughs> joint um yeah. where was the last joint where did we end up do you remember was it Count? Oh, my God. No, it wasn't Count. Count, we met that really nice couple who actually had heard of us as well, remember? I'll tell, um, you, where, I'll tell you where it was. It was Kelly. It was that little weird snacky place. It was like a snack. It had been a... No, 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 no. It was an even bar. smaller one after that where they were playing a live gig where Honda Tamayasan was playing oh. with his Led Zeppelin jazz group. <laughs> it was that place. It was a Cabo, Cabo. <laughs> Yes, Cabo, that was something it. Something like that. It seats yeah. about five people plus that's the right. band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. we sat outside waiting until they finished playing the gig to go in. Yep. So here, listen, let me, um, let me ask you the question that I hate the most. Uh, people often ask me, and I got this a few times when we uh, exhibited the project in Munich back in January. Uh, what's your favorite place? I, I mean, yeah, that's just, you know, come on. That's, <laughs> you know, how, how do you, how could you even... Yeah, it's it, tough, right? It, it really, it really is. It's such a cliche. It's like, it's like they're your you're children, welcome. But, you know, a hundred and hundred and sixty places. I mean, I, I don't know because you know, there's places that I've been that are that are 
kind of my old regular joints that I've been going to for 10 plus years. Right. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make them my favorite. Um, but I would say that, you know, as, as a couple highlights, um, as we mentioned, the first joint, uh, Pithecanthropus erectus named after the Charles Mingus album, where we started the project that, that just because of its location in a very unfashionable part of Tokyo, um, it's, um, it's absolute refusal to adopt to the modern world. It makes no concessions to the modern customer. It is dusty, dirty, poorly lit, poorly ventilated, completely smoky, with food that you would never touch in a million years. A total fire trap. It is, it's a complete fire trap. Yes, it's everything that you think would turn people off, but when you enter into it, it's magical because yeah. it's like going back to 1965 to listen to the new Mingus records that came out. So definitely there, um, a place called Egakan, which is a Ooh. sort of a little hard to describe, but in Tokyo where the, the, the owner used to be a film director. So it's like all these great film posters plus jazz. Um, and I, Definitely Ray Brown, which we mentioned just because of the amazing story. But yeah, there's so many places and we didn't even get to, you know, we, we, we did, um, we did a rather overly ambitious trip to Hokkaido and Kyushu in five days flying from the north of the country to the south of the country. And we popped into a few places there like that would make my top five list like uh, Naima in Oita Prefecture. Do you remember that one where we met the, 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 uh, the owner's daughter who was based in New Jersey? Yeah. She spoke I, English. I was going to say that one actually, cause you know, we, we, we were kind of, out, we were out in the car this time and we were driving around, uh, I think uh, was it, no, it was kind of Southern part of South, sort of Eastern coast of Kyushu around Oita and, and uh, we stumbled on this place, Naima, and like we knew nothing about it. And you can see the photographs on the website as well. But, you know, it was basically a house sort of sunken about, I'd say, three, four feet into the ground. So you had to go down sort of a staircase to get to it. It, had it, was like a, more, it was more like a concrete bunker, actually. But it, was like a, it had like a pyramid roof as well, right? Yeah, so the roof yeah. a pyramid. And inside the roof, when you went inside, it was all like wooden... Uh, like sort of beams and rafters and things like that. And up there, there was like a huge double base and recording equipment. And then downstairs, there were like sofas. And uh, I, I always remember that huge Sonny Rollins poster as, of him yes, as a yes. samurai. Yes, yes, yes. One one of his Japan tours. Plus, there was like a big bookshelf, a lot of CDs and albums. And it was just amazing because the, you know, it's just so random that the owner's daughter was there visiting back from the States and she spoke such good English and yeah. was completely amazed that we found her parents' shop. She's like, how yeah. did you guys get here? Like, cause I mean, imagine they're not going to get any foreign customers in there at all. Well, it's funny because I think like, you know, for those of you who, who haven't been to any jazz places like this in Japan, I mean, if you take, imagine the most suburban blandest kind of suburban neighborhood that you can think of in the area that you live in and then just drop this incredible jazz cafe into the middle of that and that's kind of what you're talking about you know you turn a corner this kind of very gray faceless kind of japanese suburban streets and, and you turn this corner and there's like a small parking lot and this enormous black and white uh lit sign of coltrane's face and, you know, it's that kind of like, uh, it's that kind of experience. So we, we were so um, amazed to find some of these places. And you just kind of wonder how these places survive and, and how they kind of 
are still going after like 30, 40, 50 years in some cases, you know? I remember that sign too, because you don't get that in Tokyo because there's no space. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Um, and that, and that leads us to the, the, the greatest sign of all the places because it's the entire, it's the entire side of a two or three story house in Kyushu, yeah. a little bit outside of Fukuoka city. I forget the town name now, but it's made, what was it? About 20 minutes drive outside Fukuoka. Yeah. yeah. And that was Coltrane, Coltrane. And uh, Coltrane Coltrane is a cafe on the first floor of this three-story house surrounded by nothing else. It's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. It's actually next to a soccer stadium. And uh, it's painted a, a very a sort of a mix of lime and forest green. And on the side of the house is a giant mural of John Coltrane. And you just think like, is there any other country in the <laughs> world where you would find this? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's unthinkable that you would see this anywhere else but Japan. Um, now getting into that place was a bit of a hassle. Uh, I don't know if you want to tell the story of that. We had to come back, what was it, twice, I think, before we could get in. And it was the last place we visited in our trip uh, in Kyushu. Um, but uh, we, we did make it in. And then, I remember because they were waiting for us at about 11 p.m. at night, right? Yep, yep, yep. I think that's a story that we save for the next time because I think probably we were a bit ambitious in trying to do all this in, in the time that we set ourselves, which was like 35 to 40 minutes. So um i think maybe we we kind of pause there what are you thinking and and maybe pick up some of these stories uh and if sure, people, if, sure, if people, sure. if people want to if people want to hear them maybe they can let us know through the website through social media and we can um we can do another session like this and have a bit of a chat about some of the stories behind the places if you don't know the project um you can find it online at www.tokyojazzjoints.com instagram twitter uh facebook also tokyo jazz joints um, and it'd be great if you could go along there and, and have a look at some of the photographs in more detail. There's, a, there's about 130 odd joints currently on the website. Uh, and we'd love to hear some feedback on the project and stuff if you're interested. If you do want to hear more from James and I talking about these, these um, places that we've been to, uh, give us a shout, hit us up, uh, give us a message or, or get in touch with us on social media and we'll see what we can do. Yeah, we'll put all our details up on, uh, on, on here for people who are listening to this, uh, to this show. Uh, where you can contact us, find us all on social media, and uh, maybe we'll, yeah, if the reaction's good, we'll come back with a part two and, you know, maybe do some deep cuts so I can tell you all about Philip's driving habits, which would uh, certainly entertain you. Um, and, I, can tell, uh, I, can tell, I can talk about how many times I had to wake you up at the end of the night. How about that? <laughs> Hey, I'm very consistent, you know. There's no surprises with me at the end of a jazz bar night. <laughs> true, true. Anyway, listen, it's been great to chat. We'll we'll definitely do it again. You bet, you bet. Let's 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 make a plan for part two. And uh yeah, please do get in touch with us. Find us both online and uh yeah, keep swinging. All right, cheers, man. Okay, take it easy. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.